Let's begin our, begin our time in prayer this morning. Father, as we come to your word, uh, as we come to this service, uh, our lives are filled with many things that are uh, just, just awful. Um, and we seek peace, we seek your face. This morning, I pray that as we study your word, you would disrupt those who are too comfortable. And I also pray that you would comfort those who are experiencing disruption in their lives. I pray that the gospel would go forward and you would renew and change hearts for your glory. Amen. It's my joy to bring the word this morning. Um, I want to start by telling you a story. This last Friday, in the south of France, in a peaceful, quiet little city, there was a horrific story that went down, where horror and terror struck this small town as a gunman with ties to ISIS entered a supermarket on a rampage where he killed four, he wounded a dozen more, and he also took hostages. It was at this time that a highly distinguished uh, officer in the anti-terror force showed up in a very heroic way. This man's name was Lieutenant Colonel Beltram, and Lieutenant Colonel Beltram traded places with one of the hostages, allowing that hostage to go free. An incredible act of heroism. And as this exchange was taking place, Lieutenant Beltram entering the supermarket as the, as the hostage was going free was actually gunned down and killed. He traded his life for the other. Today we're going to talk about another hostage situation of far greater stakes. We're going to talk about how Satan through the fall has this entire world corrupted and is holding us hostage through the penalty of sin that we're all under and how we need a savior to ransom us from that penalty. Today's Palm Sunday, a week before Easter. And we're going to look today at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he is intentionally marching towards the cross to experience the rejection and the pain and the suffering and everything that we just read from Isaiah 52, that that would be placed upon him so that his people could go free. That's what this is about today. So we're going to see from our passage today that the king has come and that he has come to die for his people. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke 19 with me. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 40. And we're going to see from this passage three things. That Jesus is the proven king, Jesus is a paradoxical king, and Jesus is a praiseworthy king. So to begin our time with looking at how Jesus is a proven king, I want to read part of our passage for us. It says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You'll say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I want you to see from this little interaction, this little passage right here, something that exemplifies all of what's happening in Luke so far, in the Gospel of Luke. In this account right here, as Jesus is bringing this donkey to himself, he is proving that he is the king with authority over all things. And this is a historical event. 
The way that he acquires this donkey, this is not a tall tale. This is not a parable. This is a providential act orchestrated by the king. He's in charge of all history. He has made this happen. He didn't have this prearranged with the owner of the donkey. He made it happen because he's the king and he has authority over historical acts. And we see through the Gospel of Luke several other ways that Jesus is proving that he is the king over all things. And he leaves nothing to dispute. We see in Luke that he calms storms. Storms. We still can't do that. 2,000 years later. That Jesus is the Lord of all creation, as Colossians 1 says, that he's the creator and the sustainer by his powerful word. He's in charge. He's got it. He is the king of creation. We also see that he is the king of the spiritual realm. The demons, Satan himself, the demons and the legion would be rebellious against his kingdom and thwarting it. And we see in Luke, as a strong man is bound, he can break his chains through the, the, the way that he's uh, in, infested with demonic activity. And Jesus cast out this legion of demons into the pigs. The pigs run down the, the side of the mountain and they are drowned. We see that Jesus makes even those who are rebellious to him submit and obey him with his presence and his command. Jesus is in charge of the natural, the spiritual, the historical, as well as the physical. Throughout the gospel, we see so many accounts of how Jesus is healing the physical ailments of people that they can't find healing in any other way. Jesus tenderly, with compassion, heals a woman who has a flow of blood for 12 years. She spent her whole savings on trying to find a healing for this, and there was no healing. The paralytics, the lepers, these diseases and these ways of the sin of the world affecting these people, born paralyzed, Jesus heals them. So he's Lord of the physical realm as well, as well as the mortal realm. Jesus raises people to life. He creates life, he restores life. Jesus twice in the Gospel of Luke alone raises people to life and that shows that he has complete authority there as well. And all of this points forward to the ultimate reality that Jesus is the king with authority over the eternal realm and that he has come to bring peace. But he has to bring peace through the shed blood of himself, not through the sword. And so we see these six proofs just from this passage and throughout Luke of how Jesus proves he is the king with authority and he has brought his kingdom near to the people. He is making his kingdom known. And so he does that with every single kingly act where he exercises that authority. And so we see that Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, this is known as the triumphal entry, Jesus doesn't come seeking a coronation. He comes as the king. He's already proven that he is the king. He comes declaring himself to be the king. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means this. If Jesus is the king, then we are his kingdom people. And what does that mean for us? It means that we follow our king, does it not? What does that mean in the context of what we're talking about? Well, it means that we do as Jesus did. Jesus was a man who was proclaiming the kingdom in word and in deed all the time. He was making the kingdom known in everything that he did, bringing the kingdom near. And so, like Jesus, we are called to the ministry of the Word, proclaiming the Gospel, and the ministry of deeds, acts of mercy. 
And the way that we can do that follows just in suit with the way that he did, caring for the felt needs of the people around us. Now, we may lack authority to calm storms, cast out demons, heal the sick and the wounded. We may lack the actual authority that Jesus had, but we can show up as his kingdom people and care for people in their time of need, can we not? Yeah, that's great. We certainly can. Let me tell you, March Madness is the time of the year that the basketball tournament happens in, in college. Um, this year, March has brought madness to, to my family. Um, we have been so blessed to, to learn that we are pregnant with our second, and we are thrilled, and yet there has been so much complication, and it's still so early, that even this, um, this, joyful, this joyful gift that we have received um, has confusion. There's, there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of angst. It's caused a lot of physical uh, difficulties um, and emotional and spiritual as well. And I just want to say, as way of illustration, that God's people have showed up for our family in a powerful way. And I think that that is what it looks like for us to care for those in the church and outside of the church in acts of mercy for the gospel proclamation. Uh, people have... Uh, brought us meals. People have uh, offered us child care. People have looked at me in the eye and said, Luke, how you doing? And then they've said, no, no, no. How you really doing? They've offered me emotional care and my wife. Um, one family was bold enough to come and clean my house. Uh, that's a hard gift to receive. Uh, if you wanted to clean my laundry, I might actually say no. But, uh, you know, cleaning the house is a, is a tough one to receive, but it was such a gift. Um, and one friend who I was supposed to meet with but had to cancel on, instead of meeting with me, met with Jesus and prayed for my family for an hour. I have felt so loved. Um, so please, um, as, as the church, think of this as a way for us to, to live out of the gospel in deeds, um, both in the, in the church community as, as well as outside of the church. But we have to remember that we must prioritize the ministry of the word over ministry of deed and mercy because no one can be saved by experiencing gospel deeds but only through hearing and believing the gospel message our gospel deeds open the door for the gospel message because it's a tangible reality of the kingdom coming near and then we can open the hearts and the minds with the lord's help to see the beauty of the gospel message jesus has proven that he is the king and we should live in response as his kingdom people. So our second thing that we're going to look at from this passage is how Jesus is a paradoxical king. You probably have seen that throughout the Gospels as you read it. We see that because he doesn't meet expectations, yet he fulfills prophecies. So first is, well, why wasn't he meeting expectations? Well, the people were interpreting Scripture based on their preferences. We see that in two ways, that they were interpreting Scripture based on the history that they'd seen and the circumstances that they were living under. In the, in the golden days of Israel, they had King David, who took the throne and gave the people incredible peace and prosperity. King David was the greatest of all kings, and to make it all the richer, King David conquered and brought that peace and prosperity by the sword. It says that Saul killed his thousands, 
but King David killed his tens of thousands. He did it by the sword. And so they were expecting that the next king would be this conquering warrior king, this political figure who would take over and bring that same peace and prosperity through the sword. They liked that. Their current circumstances, fast forward from King David to the time of Jesus, it's been hundreds and hundreds of years since there was a king, and there were so few good kings that they were just interspersed throughout, but it's been hundreds and hundreds of years since they've had a good king, and you have to understand that the king was tied to their identity. As go the king, so go the people, and so the people really are lacking identity. Their land has been taken away. Their king has been taken away. They're under Roman occupation. They're a principality. Okay? They're under the rule of Rome, the Roman Empire. So they're under this circumstance that says, what, what's going on? Where is God? Can we blame them? Can we blame them for trying to interpret their relationship with the Lord based on history and circumstance? I think that's how we tend to operate too. I think we tend to interpret God's goodness to us and our relationship with the Lord based on our experience, the stories that have shaped us, and our current circumstances. I think it's so easy for us when life just hits us hard with disease and death and cancer and suffering, jobs, finances, to just say, God, where are you? And we should. We should. But we should also remember that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we got to remember that Jesus is a paradoxical king, which means that he may be faithful to us in ways that are not immediately to be understood. That Jesus, that the Lord, His faithfulness might show itself in ways that we don't expect, and honestly, often, probably against our preferences. That's a paradox. That's how He rolls. That's how He does it. But we also see how Jesus has this, this, this multiple layers of paradoxicalness with His titles. Like, he, He's the, the humble king. Those things don't go together. Humble king. He's also the prince of peace, the great I am, God's own name, God almighty, maker of heaven and earth, yet he was born of a woman, laid in a manger, in poverty. That's a paradox. What about Jesus' teaching? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. What, Jesus, what does that mean? What about this? Love your enemies. Do good to those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It's a paradox. Why would we do that? That's totally outside of our normal way of thinking. That's totally a kingdom mindset. That's, that's, that's nothing of this world. What about the way he spent his time? Jesus spent his time with the least of these. Jesus spent his time with the worst of the worst, the sinners of his day, the Bernie Madocks, the embezzlers, the swindlers, the prostitutes, anyone who thought they had it figured out in life, Jesus would have nothing to do with. And so that's good news for us. Because if you're like me, and you know that you don't have it figured out, Jesus might actually want to hang out with you. He wouldn't have anything to do with the religious elite. 
Jesus was a paradoxical king, and he did not meet expectations, yet he was fulfilling prophecy. It was his intention to do just that. We read from Zechariah 9.9 earlier. I'm going to read it again now if you want to turn there. Probably don't have time because it's hidden in the minor prophets, but um, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a fowl of a donkey. We think about Jesus riding on a donkey as the way that he was humble because we're Western and because we think that he should have been on some elephant or, you know, like a lion, like in the movie Aladdin, like the princes come in, you know, it's triumphant. But the donkey was actually a royal signifier. This was used all throughout the Middle East at that time to show royalty. Uh, King David and, and Solomon as well, mules and donkeys. But we have to see here that Jesus is using this donkey the same way that he, we saw from earlier in Luke. He is literally fulfilling this prophecy. This would have been something that everyone would have understood. They would have known exactly what this was. This wouldn't have been obscure in any way. Jesus literally fulfills this, and it's a bold declaration that I am who Zechariah has promised. I'm the king, and I'm here. Righteous and having salvation. So part of what he's doing here, in the same way that he was orchestrating the history of the donkey, he knew what kind of animal it was. He knew where it was tied up. The fact that it was tied up, he knew it had never been ridden. He knew that he knew how to orchestrate it so that he could acquire it by saying the Lord needs it. He knew all that. The same way that he orchestrated that historical event, he's orchestrating his death. Because in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 51, he says that he's setting his face to Jerusalem. That means that Jesus understands that he's going to the cross. He understands that he's going to be crucified because he's fulfilling prophecy. He understands his role because there's a necessity of suffering that we just read about in the suffering servant passage of Isaiah. He understands that there is a necessity for suffering. So throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he has been concealing his true identity. They knew it. He proved it. But he was concealing it. When Peter says that you are the Christ, Jesus says, tell no one. Because he knew that the timing wasn't right. Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the Passover feast and he shows himself to be the true Passover lamb whose blood is shed so that it may be passed over of his people. Jesus now, uh, instead of concealing his identity, he makes this bold declaration and reveals his true identity as the king who has come. And the king has come to die. But we have to understand that the people were expecting this warrior king to overthrow Rome. Jesus does not come with a sword in his hand to liberate his people. Instead, Jesus comes to fall on the sword to liberate his people. Do you see it? He came to suffer. He understood Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53.5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
Jesus understood that to be about himself. And Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem because he knew he had to suffer so that you wouldn't have to. Three times in Luke, Jesus foretells his suffering and his death. And now timing is right. At the time of the Passover, where he can make this bold declaration of himself being the king, he knows the people are going to kill him. He knows it. But the timing's right. He knows that this is the time where he can show that he is the true Passover lamb. And why does he do it? Why is there a necessity of suffering? He has to make atonement for sin. The way that we're held hostage by sin. The way that God is known as a loving father. But God is also a just judge. A just judge who must punish sin. We are deserving of nothing but God's wrath and condemnation. And so Jesus comes to suffer that for us, to have placed upon himself the iniquity and chastisement so that we can be brought peace. That's called atonement. At one meant. Jesus makes us at one with God, where we had been separated previously because of our sin. He pays the penalty for that. That's why Zechariah refers to Jesus as one who is righteous and having salvation. Jesus is the only one who actually lived a righteous life, who actually earned righteousness. Legalism doesn't work because we're all sinful. We can't actually earn anything before God, but Jesus did. Jesus earned right standing because he was the only one who was perfect and sinless. And yet, he offers us that righteousness as he takes our sin upon himself. That's how salvation happens. That's a paradox. Jesus is paradoxical. So we see that Jesus is the king, and the king has come to die. Which makes us a paradoxical kingdom people which means that the way we live in response to the king, following after him, has to also be paradoxical and, and just kingdom-minded. Just nothing worldly about us. Counter-cultural in every way. Luke 9 says it this way. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, anyone want to be a disciple of Jesus, count the cost now because it is, it is significant. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The thing that really catches my attention there is that he says daily. If you're anything like me, um, you can show up and you, know, you can make a decision to you know, take up your cross every once in a while, but it's that daily part, that you know, uh, forever part that I find difficult in my, in my own self in my strength. Um, so we have to remember that Jesus is a paradoxical king and we should live as his paradoxical kingdom people by taking up our cross daily. Daily. The third thing that we're going to look at here is how Jesus is a praiseworthy king. We see that in Luke 19 verses 34 through 40. After the donkey comes, he said to them, oh, sorry, uh, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, which is a sign of royal treatment. As he was drawing near, 
already on the way down the Mount of Olives, while the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. I want you to catch that there's two groups in this picture. We have the disciples and the Pharisees. I'm just going to go through this rather quickly. The disciples acknowledged that he was the king, didn't they? And they said, it's because of all the mighty works that they'd seen. The donkey, nature, spiritual, physical, mortal. He'd done it all. He'd proven it. The Pharisees denied him as the king. They say, rebuke your disciples. They reject him as the king. They reject his power. They reject him as savior. I, I just think it's, it's interesting because I think that's the same message today. For those who reject Christ, I think there is a visceral reaction against our claims of who Jesus Christ is. That the world and those who reject Christ would try to silence his disciples. They would try to silence the church from explaining boldly that Jesus has power, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the king, that Jesus brings salvation, and that certainly Jesus is the exclusive way to be made right or at one with God. I think that's the message of the world, is saying, church, shut up. Shut up. But look at what Jesus says in verse 40. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think what Jesus is saying there is nothing you can say or do is going to prevent my kingdom from coming. Nothing you say or do will prevent me, the praiseworthy king, from receiving the praise and the worship that I am due. So we see that there's two groups, disciples and Pharisees. The disciples acknowledge him as king, the Pharisees deny that. But here's what's interesting is neither group worshipped him for who he truly was because they all had the same misunderstandings about who he was supposed to be. It's not until after the resurrection that Jesus comes to the disciples and opens up the scriptures and shows them all the things concerning himself that they understand who he truly is. And then they are set free to worship him and serve him in bold and miraculous and unbelievable ways. Because they realized he was the praiseworthy king who was fulfilling Zechariah, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 52, 53. So what does that mean for us today? What does it look like for us to be true worshipers today? True worshipers are those who recognize Jesus as a praiseworthy king who worship and obey. When we talk about obeying, I think that's, that's a word that has a lot of negative connotation today because we live in such a subjective society that prioritizes the individual self and the will that we would never obey, we would never submit to anything. And yet, there's something very clearly about Jesus being the king that means we are not the king, that we are the kingdom people following after the king. I hear people sometimes talk about Jesus being their Lord and Savior 
when they give their testimony. And they'll say something like, you know, back when I was 12, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. But it wasn't until, you know, such and such years later that I accepted Him as my Lord, as my King, and started living my life accordingly. I want to, I want to show you that from Scripture, that's a false teaching. That's a false dichotomy. There's, there's not an appropriate difference between getting saved and getting serious. If Jesus is not your Lord, then He is not your Savior because He's the King and He deserves your worship. Jesus tells us in John 15 that He's the vine, we're the branches. We've been engrafted into the vine. You're either in the vine or you're not. You're either in Christ or you're not. Sanctification is not an option in the process of becoming more like Jesus. You actually have to become what? More like Jesus. Now that's not to say that we need to work real hard at obedience and being submissive and putting on this front and being all legalistic. It's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. In your struggle with sin, which exists for all of us, Christian, um, the question is this. Are you struggling with sin? Or are you sinning without struggle? That's a good litmus test. For where are we in our relationship with the Lord? I was talking to a friend some time ago. Um, he's telling me about his sexual exploits. Um, Christian guy, and I'm just thinking, I don't know if those things are congruent. Um, and I would just remind all of us what Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And that's a picture of submission. But let me encourage us to think about Jesus like this. Do you think about Jesus as your consultant or as your king? You know, in a relationship with a consultant, you actually are in control. You hire a consultant. You fire a consultant. They give you advice. You don't have to take it. But with a king, you submit. You prostrate. A kingly relationship is different because it requires your obedience. So true worshipers are those who worship and obey. Worship. The readings that we've done... I want you to remember Isaiah and what it is for Jesus to intentionally set his face to the cross and march himself towards suffering so that you can be exonerated, so that you could be seen as righteous in God's sight. If it were not for Jesus being a praiseworthy king, then the kind of obedience and submission that I'm talking about here would seem like tyranny. It would just seem like pure duty. But God would have us know through the gospel, the, the gift of grace, that this is not driven, this obedience is not driven by duty, but it's driven by delight. Because the gospel message is a message of hope and peace and life, and it's a gift. No matter what you do, you can't earn it. No matter what you do, you can't earn it. It's a gift. And so, we are Jesus' kingdom people. Obedience is fueled not by duty, but delight. <clears throat> Jesus is an all-powerful king. 
He's God himself. He came to die. And Jesus accepts us as we are. But Jesus loves us enough to not leave us as we are. And so we have to understand that obeying Jesus, obeying his rule in our life, which is not just occasional, it's not just taking up our cross occasionally, but it's daily, that there's a way that we can worship the Lord outside of this room in the, the way that we live. Great point was made this morning in Sunday school about this, that we worship the Lord in all we do, not just in here. And this worship is driven by us being given a new heart. Isaiah 36, 26. We are given a new heart. And so it's out of that place of God restoring and creating life in us that we both worship and obey. This is not try-hard Christianity. That's not what we sell here. We sell the gospel of grace, and we believe that the gospel of grace, when it takes root, is fruitful and it flourishes. And we, the, the people, the kingdom people, bring through his dominion, the kingdom near. So, consider these words from Corinthians and Ephesians as we go. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so we might be the righteousness of God. That's good news. That's a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast a gift. The king has come bringing salvation. May his kingdom people worship him. May we adore him and obey him. And may we in his place bring the kingdom near. Let's pray together. Father, humbled, uh, in love with you, um, you have poured out your affection upon a whoring people who is us. Lord, thank you um, that you have offered grace and life to us, that you have poured out your wrath upon Jesus in our place and count us righteous in your sight, giving us the salvation that we do not deserve. I pray that chiefly myself, but my friends here as well, would learn what it is to worship and obey, not driven from a place of duty and legalism and try hard, but out of a place of thanksgiving and delight because you've given us grace. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name and we worship you now. Amen.